Heavenly Father, we just bow our hearts. We just want to acknowledge one more time that we're in your holy presence. And the word that we have here written as it is, Lord, just uh, God breathed from heaven. It just didn't have its origin in any man, but came from heaven. It's living and active and can change our hearts and lives. Uh, transform us by its power tonight. Show us Jesus. In Christ's name we pray for his glory. Amen. Well, the Old uh, Testament is famous for a few head scratchers, as I call them. You know, you, you read the incident and you kind of go, what was that all about? Uh, well, we're going to see one of those tonight in the closing chapter here in chapter 24. So you can turn there if you haven't already. Chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Now, we've been saying that as 2 Samuel has been closing out the last few chapters, it's as if the Holy Spirit uh, has been saying to us, you may be wondering what made David's life so great. And so we have seen in the last few chapters an unshakable faith and confidence and trust in the living God. We've also seen David's committed life. Uh, that centered around serving God. God was his life, and serving him was his number one priority. And then also a loyal team. Uh, we, call, we saw that they are called David's mighty men, and we talked about them last week. Loyal to David, uh, they are nothing without him, and he is nothing without them. Now, here in chapter 24, uh, there's another lesson that is left and kind of the best and most important of all. What made David a great man of God? Here in this last chapter, we're going to see that it's his ability to bounce back after failure. You know what the Proverbs says about that in Proverbs 24 and verse 16. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. And so what makes David really great is is that when he sins, he keeps a short account with God and he knows how, according to God's word, to get right with God. And when his conscience bothers him, when he feels convicted that he has sinned or fallen short, he uses God's way of getting right and getting uh, back into close fellowship with with God. So it's interesting to me that we close out here in chapter 24, not by recalling a triumph or victory, but by recalling a failure. That's how we're going to go out here. So, uh, but it goes out with a real twist, a surprise twist at the end. Now, what made David a great man of God wasn't sinless perfection, but part of what made him great was how he handled his mistakes. And this one's a big one. Verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, 
So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Well, this is gonna be a disaster. We're gonna pause there and talk, first of all, about the Lord's anger. So let the head scratching begin here because this is an intriguing account. It says that the Lord's anger burned against uh, Israel. Once again, they had provoked the Lord to great anger. Now, uh, the Lord is not pleased. He's quite offended with his people, Israel. And it says, again. Now, this will be the primary cause of the disaster of 70,000 men losing their lives as punishment. This is the cause. The Lord is already angry with Israel. And Israel is going to receive their uh, just desserts, if you will. And so without this understanding, and we have to spend a little time here in the opening verses because it's the truth here in verse one and two that really will unlock the understanding for the rest of the passage because it won't make any sense that because David sins by taking a census that 70,000 Jews are gonna be destroyed. It won't make any sense unless you remember verse one, that they're already rebelling against God and God kind of has them in his sight there. And so clearly it's not the case that this is gonna be all David's fault. Now David will even say so. He will say at the end of this, hey, take it out on me. They're innocent, they didn't do anything. Oh, but verse one, superficial reading of this, you will forget that uh, it's not about David's sin. It's about David's sin being a a mode for God to uh, bring the chastisement that Israel deserves because Israel needs to come back to him. And so the nation has wandered. They provoked God into action. They've rebelled or sinned or hardened their hearts, and the Lord is going to allow the circumstances to unfold, the testing of David and his failure, his sin, to, be, to achieve his aim, to bring Israel back into right relationship with him, to chastise. Now, when we talk about the chastisement or discipline, or you want to call it the spanking of the Lord, I mean... Um, his anger burns only as bright as his love does. Now, it's an Old Testament idea quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, uh, Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, and verse 11 and 12, that says, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Do not resent his rebuke, for the Lord disciplines, that word chastises, those he loves, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. When we talk about God bringing down the uh, smackdown of some kind on his people, um, it's not punitive. It's really uh, redemptive. He, uh, the word can mean to refine or to purify. Uh, that's where we get the word chaste. Chaste means to be sexually pure. Right, And so uh, chastisement is to make somebody pure, uh, mature, to strengthen. And so it, it's actually done in love because he loves us. I, I've said this before. One time I picked up my younger sons uh, when they were probably in fifth or sixth grade and uh, from youth group. And the, one of the youth workers came up to me and said, hey, I just need 
you don't know what happened tonight. You know, you're going to hear about it. Uh, the boys kind of got into a little trouble. They were playing chicken out in the street. And so what they were doing were they were laying down in the street with the other boys in the youth group, and they call it chicken or some other name, uh, roadkill, maybe, <laughs> be a good name. And whoever would lay there the longest is the hero, right, or the dead guy, right? <laughs> and so uh, I heard about that, and because I love my boys and don't want them to be roadkill, then I discipline them. Now, if I didn't love them and didn't care, I wouldn't do anything. So that's the point of God's anger burning at Israel is to bring them back to their senses to be in a right relationship so he can bless on them and love them. Uh, Not only for their own sakes, but for the sakes of those uh, that they are supposed to be uh, witnessing to in this life. And so... Um, What have they done to anger him? Uh, Verse 1, the Holy Spirit doesn't think we need the details. Uh, He just supplies the word again. So again, the Lord's anger is burning against them. That just means the same sort of thing that we've talked about before, hardening their hearts or stiffening their necks or not coming to Jerusalem to worship or uh, not keeping his commands or joining with pagan customs and being uh, into immorality, uh, golden calves. Israel was playing chicken, right? So uh, you know what? It's not good for Israel to play chicken because if Israel goes down, right, and we lose a savior, if Israel goes down, uh, redemption for the world is lost. So it's pretty important. And you know, if you think about it, Jesus talked about us being the light of the world in Matthew chapter five and verse 14. You are the light of the world. So he needs to discipline us. I like what one uh, writer said, when the radiant beams from the lighthouse go out, great peril on the open seas exists, loss of life. So you and I, God chastises us because not only for our sakes, but for the sake of others who live by the light in us. Not just about for our good. How about everybody who is trying to live their life by the light radiated uh, from Christ in our own hearts? And so the opening verse here, uh, we see the tricky part. The Lord's anger burns against Israel, so he, the Lord, incites, incites, prompts, kind of allures David to do the wrong thing. That's what it says. And that's why it's one of those head scratchers. And so uh, it doesn't exactly mean what it may seem like it means. Now, uh, if the concept isn't hard enough already, uh, 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 21 has Satan as the culprit. The exact same sentence, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take the senses of Israel. So which is it? Was the Lord inciting or was Satan doing his tempting? Well, it's both because that word is the same, but it it is translated differently in different circumstances. When God is working, it's kind of like the verse in James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So right away we know, right away we have to rule out the idea that that God is somehow tempting David to do the wrong thing. He's not, because he can't. 
We've already been instructed that that's impossible. But each person rather is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to death, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth uh, to death. Now, uh, the word there for being tempted is pyrazo, which in the good way means to test or to prove or to evaluate uh, or to strengthen. But the bad sense is to tempt or to solicit to do evil. And so the idea uh, is that Satan may be tempting David to do the wrong thing, but God is testing to prove and has a good outcome in mind. And so uh, the idea of God's involvement in the inciting of David to take the senses is that God overrules everything. The idea here is really this, this, that God is sovereign. In other words, men have free will. Uh, the, uh, they make sinful choices. And even though the devil is the prince of the power of the air, and even though the whole world is under the control of the evil one, uh, God rules still. God has a plan. So in other words, the devils conspire, but God's will is higher. Men, men betray, but God has his way. And people sin, but the Lord wins. You, you see, he raises up Pharaoh. He says, I need a bad guy. And Pharaoh says, uh, I volunteer. So he says, thank you. <laughs> All right, I need a bad guy. Uh, and, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so the Lord blesses that. And he says, you know, you may be hardening your heart, but I'm using you to display my power, Romans chapter 9. He sends Judas off. He, uh, Jesus does at the table at the Last Supper and says, go do what you got to do. He's using his free will, but the Lord is saying, go, go do it. I'm using this. I'm way ahead, you know, like a chess champion who thinks like 67 moves ahead, right? Well, the Lord has already calculated the move of every demon on the planet and every free human being. He's already calculated the whole world's moving as individuals, and he's already 100 moves ahead of all of us. That's really all that's going on here, is he's saying, you know, the devil's working David is choosing wrong, and God is kind of orchestrating it for his good will. And that's really what we've got here. So the paraphrase is, he says, here's what I want you to do, Joab. Go count up for me, every person in Israel, from the tip-top north to the very bottom, from Dan to Beersheba, so I can know how many people live in Israel. All right, that means that's not really what he wants to know. All right, and we're going to find that out. So we see the Lord's anger, first of all, and then the Lord's involvement, which we just have seen, and then number three, now the senses. Now, it seems harmless enough, and everybody, when you first read it, you're like, man, what's God so mad about? All he does is want to know how many people live in Israel, and 70,000 people got to die? Not quite what happened here. No. Here's what's going on. The census, of course, is just an official numbering, just like we do every few years, right, of a particular population. Now, a census taking wasn't illegal. You find it in Exodus 30 and Numbers chapter 3. It was done for a couple reasons. One was to 
to collect a temple tax to pay the sanctuary at the temple the bills, right? And so everybody would pay a tax that way. Jesus paid that tax in Matthew chapter 17. So very interesting there. But it wasn't to collect any revenue, and it wasn't just for any old reason. And it wasn't just for curiosity to see how many people lived in Israel. Uh, uh, Because we see here, it's for information. It was to count soldiers. So if you look at verse 9, they, they tell him, this is how many able fighting soldiers you have in the army. That's what he wanted. But he said, oh, I just want to know how many people live in Israel. Of course you do. Now, here's what one writer said. We start to go down the wrong road by telling ourselves lies to help us get to where we really want to be. I'm just reaching out to my friends, trying to be a good witness, or I'm just needing to wind down a little after a long, hard day, or I'm just expressing my prayer concerns about somebody. I don't mean to slander them. Um, I was, thank you for that acknowledgement (laughs) over there. I was just curious. Oh, how many people? Oh, I I saw this thing. I clicked on it. I was just curious. Another one of those winks, you know. Uh, We want to get where we want to get, but we don't want to look in the mirror and say, how could you be so rebellious and sinful? So we make up the story. I just want to know how many people live in Israel. Is that so bad? Yeah, it is, because that's a lie. That's not just what you want to know, and we're going to find out what it really is. Now, if you did take a census, you had to do it the right way. And Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 12 tell you, if you're going to take a census, Moses, here's what you got to do. When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Okay, now, now what is this about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's a very small token. It's 25 cents. Everybody in Israel, if somebody came by and said, hey, the king wants to count everybody, everybody came up with a quarter. It it was a small token, but it had significant meaning. It meant this. The people didn't belong to Moses or any person, no priest, king, or prophet. Their lives, their resources, their gifts, their abilities, their callings, everything about that person uh, belonged to God. So they didn't belong to Moses. So, so, so when you're counting them, they weren't Moses' possession. They're not David's possession. And the, and the way that they, they expressed that was paying a ransom. We belong to the Lord. So if you're counting us for any other reason, like for your own purposes, your own glory, your own achievement, oh, nobody, we belong to the Lord. So you count us up because we belong to him. So let's see how they collected the ransom money. Verse four through nine. The king's word, however, overruled Joab, who didn't think it was a good idea, and the army commanders, who also didn't think it was a good idea. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So now we've got some clarity. It's not just to find out who lives in Israel. He wants to know who can fight for me. Verse 5, after crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroer, uh, south of the town in the gorge, and they went through Gad onto Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim, Hadshi, and on to Danjan and around to Sidon. Now, 
Then they were, then they went rather toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. So 1,300,000 soldiers at your command. Let's call this number four, David's sin. Where's the ransom money? Let me see, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, no ransom money. Well, didn't the Lord say there would be a plague if you didn't do that? Didn't express that these people belong to God. They're not your people, you see? So something isn't right. Joab knew it. Now, when Joab, dastardly Joab, who is kind of barbaric, and he's gonna get executed at the end by David through Solomon, right? When Joab thinks that you're morally off, you should reassess the situation. <laughs> but jo- Joab says this, why, and I'm paraphrasing Joab now, all right? David, why suddenly do we have to count the people? We've done pretty well thus far. Uh, hello, uh, 300 men, the, three, the 30 fighting men, plus the 300, have really handled the whole job for First and Second Samuel. So why suddenly do we need to count every single 20-year-old guy in Israel? What's up with that? Uh, uh, What's your problem, old man? Uh, I'm sorry, but he is 70. David's 70, and he's having an end-life crisis. This is not a a midlife crisis because he's a a couple years out from uh, going home to be with the Lord. What's really driving you to count the men? And in 1 Chronicles 21, the parallel companion passage to this, he says, you're going to get us all in trouble by doing this. Joab is smart, smarter than David right now. So even Joab can see. Whatever happened, David, to your Psalm 20, verse 7? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, we're not like that. We don't count everybody and say, hey, it's all about us and our strength. How many numbers? It's never been about that. It's always been about God and his victory and his strength and his goodness and his favor and his blessing. Now suddenly, you got your eyes off of the Lord and onto yourself. And the pride of life and self-reliance. You started well, and now what's got in the way here? Now, uh, verses five through eight, we see it took them 10 months. 10 months, the Holy Spirit saying, please call this off. 10 months of his conscience and the Holy Spirit saying, you're doing the wrong thing. 10 months is a long time to let it go on. And verses five through eight, of, as I just cited, says oh, they went over the river and through the woods, down, yeah, and probably to grandma's house. Counted, didn't count grandma, but some of the grandsons. Uh, down the valley, up the slopes, and did they collect a tribute? Nope. Now, no ransom money required. Here's what he was saying by this. And now we're gonna start to see how where David's heart is at. Uh, No ransoms required uh, because uh, they're my people. Uh, They're my resources. It's my kingdom. I built this up. I did this. You don't need to pay. I'm just counting for my own purposes. This isn't about the Lord. This is about you fighting for me. You guys owe everything to me. 
I've been up in front the whole time. Come on. I'm the king. The reason Israel is blessed is because of me. Oh, are we starting to feel what, what he's doing, how he's backsliding, why the Lord is going to have to bring the smack down on him? Now, um, and he's also saying on top of that, uh, it's not up to God anymore. It's up to us. But we used to rely on God back in the day. But now that we're Israel, man, and now that I'm going to be retiring and Solomon, who's a man of peace, and he doesn't have any military experience. He's a thinker. All the guy does is sit around with books, and he writes Proverbs. That was funny. Think about it. <laughs> did, you, did you not know Solomon wrote the Proverbs, most of them? Yeah. So David is saying he's excusing himself. Hey, we've got to count them. It's all up to us now. This is not good. This is not good. So, and, and by the way, so why do 70,000 people got to die? First of all, they're backsliding and rebelling. We already found that out. They've already provoked God. So God's looking for a way to say, hey, I got to bring some punishment so that to, to bring you back in. But yeah, David may be saying the kingdom is mine by doing this thing. But what is Israel? Israel's not protesting, and Israel's not paying it. So Israel's saying, you know what? We're not paying it anyway because we're free agents now. Oh, we don't need to be ransomed from the Lord. We're Israel. We don't need that ransom money, you see? So we're not going to pay. We're not going to protest. That's fine by us. So David, on one hand, is saying, you belong to me. And they're saying, we're good with that because we don't belong to him anymore. Gee whiz. So David kind of left his position of faith and trust, and Israel left their first love. So now it's time for the smackdown. It's as simple as that, 10 through 17. Now, after, after, always after, and David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Now, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David Seer, that's kind of his chaplain. You know, I'll just pause there. You know, as spiritual as you may be and as a prophet as you may be, when it comes to correcting in your own life, it's difficult to hear. So the Lord wisely puts a guy or several guys in David's life who could speak to him about David. David can hear about other things, but when it comes to hearing the last 10 months, Nine months and 20 days, he didn't hear very well. Yeah, that's what happens, verse 12. So to David's chaplain, let's call him, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says, I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70 thousand of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. All right, let's pause there. We've seen, number one, the Lord's anger. He's a loving father who's disciplining. Number two, the Lord's involvement, enticing David. He's sovereign. He's working. 
Number three, the census, which was a gigantic misstep. Number four, David's sin, which we'll call pride. And now, number five, the chastisement. Now, David's not perfect as we have seen. He's pretty vulnerable to pride, self-reliance, but he's still sensitive to sin. Now, verse 10, so important. It says in the, in the Hebrew, his heart struck him. The verb there is to, to slay, to kill, or to whip, or to beat. It says, so he's conscious stricken in our English, but in the Hebrew, he's saying, I'm dead inside. I've been struck a deadly blow. I feel like I'm dead. I'm in deep distress. When we sin in a serious way against the Lord, I remember in Bible college, you know, just young men always getting into trouble or, you know, I remember a group of us talking and we called that time after our conscience was stricken the dead zone because you just feel like the air got sucked out of the room. When you know I have sinned, I did it willfully, I knew exactly what I was doing, and, and God brings it to light. You just, you can barely take a breath because when God has grieved the source of your life, the relationship, you just feel like, is there any point to go on? I mean, I mean, when God's not happy, I mean, we have a saying when mama's not happy, but yeah, that's one thing. <laughs> to hear the cupboards banging or the glass going down hard like that, but it's another thing when, when Papa God is not happy. How many of you women let your true feelings be known by how you put away dishes? You just put them away with a little bit more enthusiasm. All right, I can tell I need to move on now by some of the looks on your faces. And so we see... Uh, there's confession, because he's in the dead zone and he's not very happy. So what does he say? Love, love the way David just has a heart that is affected by how he sinned. And he says, I have sinned greatly, I, I, and I've played the fool. I blew it big time. I beg you, take away my well-deserved guilt. I played the fool. Not like some apologies that we uh, have heard here in life. When we offend another person, we'll say something like, I'm sorry if something I might have done may have offended you in some way, which I have a hard time believing ever happened. Now, that's not called an apology. What? I apologize. No, you didn't. So... We feel deep regret when we sin and we, we follow his example and keep a short account. And the Bible says when we confess our sins and turn from them, he's, he's faithful, he's just, he'll cleanse us, put us back right with him. Verses 11 and 12, now uh, Gad comes and, and says to him, you've got three options. Number one, a natural disaster. It'll last for three years and it'll be a famine. Number two, it'll be a military calamity. It will it'll be war, three months of losing. And number three, a deadly outbreak of some kind. Uh, it'll last three days. So it's a test, by the way. God's testing him. Because one and two, David can protect himself from. Uh, number one, he's already been through a three-year famine. He does, he's wealthy. He lives in a palace. He has friends and family, and he has friends with nations. 
He'd survive. Everybody else would have a hard time. But him and his family, good to go. Number two, uh, the war. He's already been uh, told you are never going to be fighting again. He's 70. He's going to be, you know, shut up in the palace. You know who's going to die? A lot of the people, not him and his family. Number three, a deadly pestilence can come straight through the palace walls. And so he's saying, Lord, put me and my family out there because we deserve it. We need to be on the equal playing field with the people that are going to have to to pay a, a price. Now, what he doesn't understand is that they're paying for their own sins. Nobody pays for, in, in, a, in that regard, for somebody else's sins. And so they, they have their own guilt before the Lord in all of this. But he does well by saying, you know what, Lord, number three, and, and it's a beautiful way of thinking. You know, he, he's saying, I don't want to put myself in the, the f- rely on that mercy of my enemies, or, you know, friends and family for food. I'd rather just fall into the mercy of God's hands, you know. Uh, Let's finish up, 15 to the end. So the Lord sent that plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Well, we already saw that they had sinned against the Lord. But he brings up a good point. Sorry to say, David, our lives are connected, and no man is is an island. So when we sin and do our own thing, you will affect your kids, you will affect your parents, you will affect the church, you will affect your witness for for Christ. It just happens. Everybody always thinks, well, it's just me. I'm just doing my own little thing. No, you're connected. And yeah, yeah. You'll cry tears and you'll say, hey, I didn't mean for everybody else to suffer over here. Yeah, sorry, buddy. That's how it works. That's how it works. Now, on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, now go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor where they process the grains of Arana, the Jebusite. Jebusite is somebody who lived in Jerusalem. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad, that prophet. Now, when Arana looked and saw the king, and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why is my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Oh, king, Arana gives all this to the king. Now, Arana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David 
bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Last sentence of 2 Samuel. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel stopped. All right, so number six then. Now the atonement. Number five was the chastisement, if I failed to mention that. Uh, Number six, the atonement. Now, of course, we're going to close out here of the book of 2 Samuel, not with a heroic or victorious account of King David, because who's the hero of 2 Samuel? Here's Here's the hero of this story, the blood sacrifice. The offering that stops the plague of death is the hero of the story, the intercession made for sinners and the plague of death stopping. That's the last beautiful words of the book. So who's the hero in the story? In the end, King David is a sinful human being who needs blood atonement. Here's your lesson, my lesson. The altar of sacrifice is the new hero, the real hero. Uh, By it and not David's courage or faith or love or the man after God's own heart, yada, 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 that's all gone because this is a vulnerable, weak, sinful, willful, proud man who has caused death to come to his own life and to Israel. And this thing's out of control and everybody's gonna die unless you get an animal stand-in to take the wrath of God in your place, David, and in the place of sinning Israel. And that animal's throat slit and the blood offered and said, look, there's all of our sins on the animal. And that thing gets burned up on the altar and that intercession, that smoke, that fragrant offering that says sins are paid for, the death and the debt is paid in full, goes up and is received by God and his wrath is satisfied. That is the real hero in the story. So the reader is gonna be left less, listen, less impressed with King David and more impressed with the son of David. The son of David is Jesus' title because he's related to King David some, I don't know, 26 generations later we find Jesus being the son of David. He's related by, by blood through Mary. Mary is related to David. But he is born of the Holy Spirit, so he is the God-man. So who, who, who are we impressed with? We're impressed with the last sentence leaves you hanging that says it's the sacrifice that stops the plague of death. And who would that be? David's the one who caused the problem. So we don't leave all, oh, it's all about David. We leave with, oh, we need some help here. We're going to have to schlep around bulls and goats for the rest of our lives and be bloodied up and offer sacrifice. What are we going to do? It leaves us longing for the true sacrifice that Jesus will be. Now, catch this because it's beautiful. What an ending. The altar is built there in Jerusalem on the hill. And he's directed to go and build an altar where the sacrifice is going to stop the plague of death is on the same hill as where the temple will be built. Solomon's temple, Mount Moriah, will be built there. You will have 1,000 years 
of offerings and blood sacrifices on that mount. 1,000 years. 600 with Solomon's temple. 400 with Zerubbabel's temple, right? 1,000 years of blood of bulls and goats and lambs and still waiting for the Lamb of God to come who will die on the cross in the same place as the threshing floor is. His son, David's relative, some thousand years later, will be born and raised in that very place. And, and I should say, he will end up in that very place in Jerusalem. And he will die where Abraham offered Isaac, the same place as the altar of this guy. He just purchased it from. It's, it's a mile or two apart. It may be just the very same place that that cross went up is on that threshing floor right there, right by the temple, a stone's throw from the temple, a stone's throw from where Isaac, the only son of Abraham, carried his own wood up the hill right there as the same path, the Via Dolorosa. Isaac walked 2,000 years before, all pointing to one thing, not the blood of bulls and goats, but of the sacrifice that would stop the plague of death and worse, the plague of hell and eternal condemnation. That's the hero of the story. The hero of the story is what happens on Mount Moriah. And I love this part. He says, hey, Arana's like, hey, king, seriously, people are dying. You're the king. Take it. Take the floor. Build the altar wherever you want. Let me give you the wood. Let me supply the cattle. And David says, this is about my sin. I need to have a personal buy-in to this. This isn't a, this has, I have to be, I'm not going to earn my salvation, but I'm going to be directly invested in what happens here. So I will not offer to the Lord what cost me nothing. You see, I love what one writer said. Adam Clark, born in 1760, listen to this. He who has a religion that costs him nothing has a religion that is worth nothing. Nor will any man esteem the ordinance of God if those ordinances cost him nothing. I really like what Jesus said. He said, whoever finds their life or saves their life or keeps their lives for themselves will lose it. And whoever loses their life, gives it up for my sake, will find it. I want to make a really important point. You can never earn the salvation. You can't buy it. What's happening here is is that David is, through, through faith, through faith saying, you know, what happens here, I'm a part of it. I have a personal investment in this thing. The same as you have to have to be saved. We, through faith, have a personal uh, interaction with the cross. You see, it doesn't cost us our life to become saved, It's a consequence of being saved that we offer up our lives. It does cost us. It costs us nothing to get in. It costs us everything to be because I've I've yielded my whole life to him and we become living sacrifices for him. It's like the the guy uh, Jesus said in Matthew 13, and I'm closing now, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Now, what's he talking about there? He's saying it's kind of like this guy who's in a field, 
and, and, he, and he finds this incredible multi-million dollar treasure. He puts it back in the ground and then he, sell, he sells everything he has to get the property from whoever owns it because it's worth whatever he has to get that piece of land because he knows what's involved in it, right? That's the kind of investment we make. Whatever it takes, you know, so uh, Arano says, hey, it's free, you know what, you know? He says, no, 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 I, it's gonna cost me something. I need to be personally involved because it's about me. The only difference between me and an unbeliever, I bought the field when I trusted the Lord. You buy the field when you trust the Lord with your life. Because what are you really saying? Baptism, baptism says what happened to you. You died. You went up in front of everybody in water and you said, listen, everybody, this is what happened to me. I met the Lord and died. It cost me my life. I died. And then up came this new life, this beautiful life that, that uh, is immune to death. That's who I am. That's what, what has happened to me. That's the only difference. I turned my life over when I died, June 3rd, 1979. I died on a sidewalk in San Francisco. And I came up this new person. The old person is gone. The new has come. And so that's what David is doing. He's buying in. He's saying, this is, this is about me. This is mine. It's my faith. I'm just going to walk by and let somebody else, you know, something I know about. Oh, there's a way to be uh, saved. No, this is about my Jesus, my life, my death, my resurrection, my Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful chapter that closes out a wonderful life. David is still surviving into 1 Kings, but we're, we're getting the, the core and the crux of the lesson of walking with you. Just thank you for how the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts even tonight. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. My reflections that I looked over the chapter and just thought to myself, my one minute takeaway for me. Number one, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf, so his anger never burns against his child. But a loving father, he still disciplines us for our good. And the more faithful we are, the less correction. That's a happy thought. Amen. Amen. Number two, when God prospers us and gives us success, we must always remember that all the credit goes to him. We started this walk totally humble and fully dependent. That's the way we live. That's the way we end. No matter how much the Lord prospers us spiritually or materially. Number three, we must keep our hearts sensitive to sin and respond when our consciences crack the whip. When we confess our sins and turn from them, he's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Five, four. Like David, the true believer can always find forgiveness, but some sins carry with them painful, long-lasting consequences, not just for us, but for everyone around us. And finally, the hero of the book of 2 Samuel is not David. It's Jesus, the atoning sacrifice 
who though he was king, becomes the uh, sin atonement for our lives that stops the plague of death and bars the doors of hell. I also have a little PS here. I just have to have a personal investment of faith in Jesus as your sacrifice, my sacrifice, in order to benefit from this wonderful work on the cross on your behalf. What made David a man of God? He knew how to get right with God, to walk with God. He knew how to bounce back. He knew how to get clean and get right. It's all about offering a right sacrifice, and that sacrifice is Jesus. We've got him. Awesome. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to our Lord Jesus, the the bearer, the sin bearer of the world, not only for the world, but for our own sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our sins on your shoulders and being the hero, not only 2 Samuel, but all 66 books. The Lord Jesus Christ, you are the hero or our Lord and Savior. We love you and we yield our lives to you. Even this night, we rededicate. Take all of us, fill our hearts and help us to walk with you to emulate David's faith and never to forget how to get right with you. That's all about your sacrifice and the new life in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.